special happy day. New deacons, new elder, ordained by new pastors. That's pretty cool. Doesn't happen very often. I have an announcement for us before we begin uh, the sermon. Um, we have a great opportunity ahead of us, church, and I've mentioned this in the MVC Connect, but I want to make a direct appeal to you here present and you watching at home. Uh, things are almost somewhat back to normal, right? We're almost through uh, this, this season. We see uh, numbers decreasing. We see uh, mandates lifting, uh, things getting back to some semblance of, of normalcy, and we want to be prepared for that, and we need your help. I'm looking for volunteers to help with Kid Venture at 9 a.m. Now, we started the week in need of 12 volunteers, and we came into this Sunday needing six volunteers, and now we only need three volunteers. And here's the need. For two years, we have only been able to provide Kid Venture Children's Ministry at the 1045 hour. Uh, nine o'clock is a really convenient time. Those of you who have young kids know nap, nap time is usually that late morning. It's just easier to come to the early service. But those families have had to stay home or opt to come to the later service and squeeze into our already uh, overfilling uh, children's classes. That's why the impact initiative is so needed because we need more space. Right now, starting in March through June, we're looking at about 16 Sundays. We're looking for volunteers that would serve twice a month at 9 a.m. So you would come, serve uh, at 9 a.m., and then come uh, to the 1045 worship, refreshed, renewed. Maybe there's something on your sweatshirt uh, from the kids, but maybe there's some great stories as well uh, to serve in the nursery, in the uh, two- and three-year-old classroom, or the four- and five-year-old classroom. So if there's anyone here who's interested, or if you're online and you're interested, will you please contact Cami Wright, our director of Kid Venture? Or you can come and speak to me or Sarah or Dave if you want some, some more information. Three left. We're almost there. Before kickoff this afternoon, we hope we find those final three. Okay, now back to the letter that changed the world, the book of Romans. This is the third and final bad news message. The rest guaranteed will be good. Hard, confusing, complicated, challenging, but all will be good. St. Paul starts his letter with humility and warmth of a pastor, uh, greeting those in Rome. He hasn't met the people uh, in this church yet. He's hoping to go see them soon. They, this is a congregation made up of both uh, Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentiles. He hasn't been there, so he wants to greet them with warmth and humility. Then with the passion and fire of an evangelist, he writes, quote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he adds, for the righteousness of God has been revealed by faith. It's by faith for faith. And then he drops cold, hard truth as a theologian. After this great message of welcome, kind of laying out a message of evangelists, the theologian writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he adds that the consequences of sin, he says three times, uh, is that God will give us over to the choices that we've made. 
In rejecting God's truth, we will be given over. And then last week, uh, we looked at chapter 2 with Pastor David. He called out the hypocrisy of his own kinsmen of, of Jews who said, that's right, those Gentiles need to be condemned. And he said, "Ah, uh-uh, not so fast. You also are under sin. You also need to get right with the Lord. And he called out their hypocrisy of passing judgment on others without looking at the concerns of their own heart. He goes on to say that the circumcision isn't just an external happening. It's our heart itself being pierced by God. That's what matters. Now, on hearing this cold, hard truth, some in the Roman church, as Paul experienced throughout all of his ministry throughout the Roman Empire, would have been deeply offended, but not in the way that you might expect today. Three bad news messages. In my experience, uh, the, the, second, uh, the, the first of those messages of the three, the one that I preached two weeks ago, uh, is the message that upsets people the most. Terribly so. Like, sadly, two weeks ago, one of our families decided that they would no longer attend our church. Last week, when Pastor David got to preach, he didn't hear anything but congratulations, right, David? It was all good news and sunshine and gumdrops for Pastor David. But Pastor Pete, not so much. Now, what's interesting, what I want you to know as we get into God's word, is the reverse was the case in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the diagnosis of the problem of idol worship, of pagans, of pagan worship, of calling sexual sin sin, no problem. People readily accepted that. That makes sense in that world and that culture. It was the next message, the message of calling out his own people, calling them hypocrites, saying you are not right with God. That is what would get Paul into trouble. So interesting how culturally things would shift. Judging unreligious people, no problem in Paul's day, but passing judgment on those who are religious, those that are moral, Well, Paul, it takes him two messages, last week and this week, to cover all of that bad news. Paul is going after religious Jews who deem themselves right with God and are casting aspersions on their Gentile brothers and sisters. And they're probably looking at Paul and saying, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You call yourself a Jew? How would you say these terrible things to your own people? In today's text, chapter 3, verses 1 to 20 that we're about to look at, Paul addresses his critics, the unreligious and the religious. So as I read the text, I want you to imagine a a heckler or an interlocker, someone that Paul is having a dialogue with. This is was common uh, practice for for philosophers in in ancient times to have a a Q&A, a back-and-forth dialogue with oneself, trying to address the concerns. It's a little hard to follow, and many of the answers for uh, the questions that are raised here will be answered in more detail in chapters 9 to 11. But what I want you to pick up on as I read this passage is that here we have the words of a pastor, of an evangelist, and of a theologian. And he loves and respects his audience enough to think hard about their concerns 
and to address them with respect and dignity. And I hope that, that you hear that from me as well. And that's definitely my purpose here. So now listen to God's word as I read. And I'll try to help you see the questions are the odd questions, of the odd uh, verses of one through seven. And then the response would be the even ones, two through eight. So he's trying to address these great concerns that people have. Verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faith, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, and though everyone be a liar, for it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay? But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in human terms. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner, Paul? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people have, have slanderously charged against us, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that, that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. For it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths, mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace... They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is complicated. Stick with me. Stick with me. Look at verses 1 to 8, pages 14 and 15, if you have uh, your, uh, your Romans journal and you're taking notes. Again, these are Q&A, back and forth, and it raises four objections that Paul readily knows and he wants to address in not great detail. He's going to touch on them, but he'll address these more as the letter goes on. Objection number one. Paul, your teaching undermines God's covenant. So imagine Paul's detractors, very religious, kosher, you could say Jews for Jesus in the Roman church, and they're asking him in verse 1, essentially, are you saying there's no difference between growing up in a religious household and being some sorry pagan Gentile? Is that what you're saying, Paul? They're probably looking at their kids, clutching their children to themselves as they're saying this, so you can see the tension here, right? Paul answers, no, I'm not saying that. 
There, there is great value. Most importantly, God has given you his word. The oracles of God, Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20 says, God has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. So Paul agrees with, the, with his critics. Out of all the nations that God could choose, yes, God has chosen Israel. God has a special relationship with Israel. Got to wait till chapters 9 to 11 to get into more detail. He's going to talk about this also in chapters 4 and 5. What's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about something they're not understanding, and that is grace. That what it means to be Jewish has been radically redefined because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Objection two. Paul, your teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. They're saying, hey, hey Paul, so, so many of our people, including probably everyone that you know personally and all your family members, not one of them believes Yeshua is the Messiah. So now what happens to God's promises if Jews are unfaithful and refuse to trust and obey him? Paul goes into greater detail, as I said, as the letter, as the letter unfolds. But suffice it to say, he writes here that even if they are unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to his covenant. And he's going to explain how amazing it is that even in the rejection of the people of God, which must have just been something that blew Paul's mind, God has now opened the way to the Gentile world. God, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, says, God keeps his word even when the whole world is lying through its teeth. Objection three. Paul, your teaching calls into question God's justice. This is an odd one, but track with me. Look at verse five. It's saying in effect, so what you're saying, Paul, is our sin shows how right God is. So by your logic, Paul, it's unfair for God to judge us. Paul puts that question in its place. He says, no, no, you're still not understanding God's grace. You're missing it. He emphatically says no, and the answer, the yes to it, will be unfolded in the chapters to come, 6, 7, and 8. Last objection. Paul, your teaching falsely promotes God's glory. His critics were accusing him of teaching a, a form of, of theology that said, the more I sin, the less religious I am, the more glory God gets. So are you saying, Paul, I should just be as, as unreligious and as much of a pagan as I can because God will get more glory? And Paul just simply says, you're missing it again. Paul emphatically rejects that. He says it's pure slander. Which He's not really shutting them down. He's saying that to set up what's coming next week, so stay tuned. In this back and forth, what I want you to notice is he's explaining faith, he's addressing criticisms, misunderstandings, misrepresentations with reason. He's trying to be reasonable. He's reasoning with them through theology and logic. And this is very important. Good questions about our faith, questions that your friends have, questions that your family members have, they're good questions, deserve good answers. Taking people seriously and with respect. At the same time, 
Paul saw the character of God being attacked, besmirched, tainted here. And he's not going to stand for that, for someone to pass judgment on his loving father. And so Paul wants to be reasonable and reason and answer questions and be present. But there's a line that can be crossed in which he'll say, no, that's simply not the case. Peter writes it this way, 1 Peter 3.15. Sometimes we only remember part of the verse and not the whole verse. He says of speaking to uh, friends and neighbors and family members about our faith, he writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's what we're about as a church, to have an answer for the reason for our hope, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Now Paul switches gears. Look at verses 9 to 20. He's wrapping it up. He's wrapping up all this bad news. He wants to really drive it home. And here's the overarching message of all this bad news is this. Everyone needs the gospel. If you've missed everything I've said, if you've missed the past couple of weeks, write this down. Everyone, underlined, needs the gospel. Because, verse 9, second half B, everyone is under sin. To, to be under sin is to be unrighteous. It's to be not right with God. It's, it's, a, it's a legal term. You're either under sin or you're under what? If this was a Sunday school, it might say Jesus. We're under grace. That's right. Either, it's always good to go with Jesus. But yeah, you're either under sin or you're under grace. So the person who lives to party and parties to live, eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow, we die. The Epicurean pursuit of pleasure, which was very prevalent in ancient Rome, all of that just hedonistic sense, that person needs the gospel. And Paul's been arguing now for a chapter and a half, and yes, you Stoics among you, you that are trying to be so pious and so religious and follow all the rules and be so moral and, and goody two-shoes, yeah, you need the gospel as well. This doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. Christian theology doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that we are as bad as we can be. What it teaches is that we are all lost without Jesus, without God's grace. And we all fall binary into one camp or the other. We're either under sin or under, under grace. We've either lost or we've been found. Try to make a practical uh, illustration. Who's watching the Super Bowl this afternoon? Raise your hand. Show of hands. Yeah, do you have any favorites? Who are we thinking? On paper, the Rams look like the favorite, right? They've got, they've got the dream team. They've got a, a fantastic team. They've got this great defense. They've got Cooper Cup, Eastern Washington's uh, son, right? We're, they're coming out strong. I would expect them to win. If David was a betting man, I don't know how much money you've put down already, David. No, DraftKings, zero? How many zeros you get? No. No, all the zeros. That's a pretty good bet. And they might blow out the Bengals, right? They might win by, who knows, maybe I'd say 17 points is, is not, uh, not impossible to happen. One team wins the Rams, the other team loses. But I'm kind of ruined for the Bengals. I, I think that's, I like that Joe Burrow guy. He, I, 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 I think that it's finally time for the Bengals to win one. 
They might win by just three. They might be close, like that amazing uh, kicker they have. He might come out with five seconds left, puts it through the uprights, and they win by three. Bengals win, Rams lose. It doesn't matter what the score is. It doesn't matter if one team runs up the score or one just barely ekes it out. One wins, one loses. And that's what Paul's trying to get through to his people. Paul's used reason and logic, and now he brings it home quoting scripture. A lot of scripture. I mean, there's lots of verses here. I'll just run off to you a couple of them. And and, uh, if you're taking notes, uh, please contact me if if I read this off too quickly. If you have your own Bible, you'll notice that there's a reference column usually in your scripture that will say uh, what is being quoted. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't know this by heart. I just have to look it up. But he's got all this argument of arguing the condition that we're in, looking mostly at the Psalms. So there's Psalm 5, 14, 53, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59 in these verses. He's saying it's in the Bible, folks. We had an Instagram message uh, two weeks ago, and someone said, where did this sermon come from? Um, it was in the Bible. It's kind of what Paul's saying here. And we won't go over all the references here, but what I want us to see in this final section of the message is Paul lays out seven effects of sin. This is his last opportunity to really lay, lay out the impact of sin, the final diagnosis of what it means to be under sin, how much we need God's grace. And it's one final dark Grim picture. Sin affects our standing before God. Verse 10, none is right with God. Sin affects our minds. Verse 11, no one understands. Sin affects our motives. No one seeks for God. We'll come back to that. It affects our will. Verse 12, all have turned away. None do good. We'll come back to that as well. Under sin, our tongues are like poisonous venom. They're corrosive. Verses 13 and 14, you can study uh, James. I think it's James 2, 3 goes into detail about that. Our relationships with other people, verses 15 to 17, the, the horizontal relationships we have with other people are marred by sin and the vertical relationship with God as well. All seven here, we're confronted with it. And we live in a day and age where people don't want to talk about S-I-N. I think this is why people don't want religion. This is why people don't go to church. But it's the God-honest truth. And we need to recognize it, that even now in our lives, even if you've accepted Christ, there's still a struggle, right? Romans 7, we'll get into that. You know, I moved here four years ago from Maryland, and my former church, Nielsville Presbyterian, was founded in 1864. Been around for a little while. Been around the block. And... Uh, it was a very traditional service. I wasn't normally dressed this way. In fact, I was never dressed this way on a Sunday morning. And we had a bulletin with all the, the details of the service written out of all the things. And so I, I pulled out this bulletin from January of 2013. This is when I was preaching through Romans the last time. I thought a little walk down memory lane. I want to share something with you. On the cover, it says, pardon our dust. We were in the midst of our own uh, building, just like we are going to be a Lord willing very soon with the Impact Initiative. There's a welcome, there's a call to worship, opening hymn, come thou font of every what? Come thou font of every blessing. 
commissioning of missionaries to India. Another hymn. Ooh, they had Crowders. We got a lot, I got in a lot of trouble for that, to have some contemporary music or Crowder song. I had a lady come up to me and say, you're ruining my church. Really? And then every Sunday, a prayer of confession. Every Sunday, an opportunity as a people to confess our sins. And we would read the prayer that I would write or the other pastor would write in unison. And here was the prayer. I'm not going to ask you to read it, nor will I ask you to stand. But the prayer that day was, Heavenly Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we've done, by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we've been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of Christ's holy name. Amen. And then there'd be a pause and an opportunity to reflect and consider the week that's gone before and the new week that's starting. Confession's good. Get that off your chest. And one of the most beautiful, delightful opportunities I had, the privileges I had as a pastor, after that quiet moment, don't stand, but I would ask the congregation to stand. And I would say these words over the congregation. I'd speak words of the gospel. I'd say, hear the good news. In Christ, we are forgiven. And then the organ would play, and we would sing the glory of Patri. Glory be to God, the Father, the Son, that's what Paul's getting at here. Do you even right now, where you're sitting or where you're watching at home, have something that you need to confess before the Lord? Under sin, there's just condemnation, guilt, more isolation, more hurt. Under grace, there's love. This is pretty intense stuff. It's hard to swallow, especially when the Bible says these two effects of sin. I've listed the seven, but let's just go back to two of them. No one seeks for God. No one does good. That's hard to accept, right? Can, can, can everyone accept that? I, I mean, I, I, I get it, but billions of people seek after God. They're spiritual. They're, there's a spirituality. People pray. They meditate. They commit their lives to the pursuit of spiritual things, seek, seeking rich, deep, internal lives of peace and enlightenment and purpose and value and meaning. Aren't people open to seeking a higher power? What is the Bible's teaching here? No one seeks God. How can that be? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Jesus gives us part of the answer. In his own words, he says to his disciples who have the same question, how do we know the way? John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul isn't saying that no one seeks for spiritual blessings, insights, answers to prayer, peace, spiritual power, enlightenment. Many, many people do. What Paul is saying is no one prompted by their own free will decision acting on their own ability under that condition of sin, that legal condition. Nobody wants to find the one true living God. That's a big distinction. 
Someone might have a great intellectual interest, curiosity, a, a feeling of openness, but there's no real passion to meet the creator. In my own experience, I've known people who've been far more spiritual and religious than myself, committing far more energy and time than I have in pursuing these things, and yet there's a way of keeping God at arm's length by making it only an intellectual pursuit, a philosophy, an experiential level, not relationship. It reminds me of interviewing a, a music director at that former church. Someone with came into my office. He had a resume a mile long, had every kind of credential you could possibly want, uh, especially a traditional style of worship. And then I asked him one last question. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And he squirmed in his seat. And he straightened his bow tie. And he said, religion and the church has always been part of my life. And I showed him the door. It's not for me to judge. Only the Lord can know, but we can be discerning of what it means to truly be in relationship with God. Now, what about this concept of nobody doing good? I mean, I mean, people do all kinds of good, really good. Literally millions of examples of people, even this past two years especially, who've done good, are doing good, helping their fellow man, making the world a better place. Why would Scripture say no one does good? The teaching of our faith, biblical Christianity, doesn't deny that people perform good works. But all of that good, prior to salvation, is not done for the glory of the holy, living, sovereign creator of the universe. And so look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Awe and wonder at the creator. And then the final verses, the law shows that we stand guilty before God. And here's why he's saying all this, wrapping it up, that everyone needs the gospel. What we'll discover in our series in Romans, and thank you for sticking with us this far. We've got a long ways to go. Is that anyone who seeks God has been sought by God. Under sin, no one is capable of truly seeking God unless God changes their heart by his Holy Spirit and pursues them first. How do I know? Jesus says in John 6, no one has come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. If you're here today, you're struggling, you have questions about your faith, what all this means, know this, you are here by invitation. The Lord has drawn you to this place. Your salvation didn't begin when you decided to seek God or to do good. It began when he chose to seek you and did good by you. One of the last things that Paul wrote, the final letter, uh, we believe the final letter was his second letter to his protege, Timothy. This is when Paul was uh, soon to be executed uh, for trusting in Jesus. He wrote this, 2 Timothy 2.25. Be gentle when you try to teach those who are against what you say. God may change their hearts 
as they will turn to the truth. Even as the executioner was sharpening the blade to execute Paul, he was praying for their souls. Maybe, Lord God, you'd change their heart. Maybe they'd hear the truth even now. Three bad news messages, a diagnosis can hurt our feelings, but it is what it is. But what also is, is the good news message and the prescription. And the prescription is that through Christ's finished work on the cross, you are more loved and accepted now than you ever could dream of. This past Wednesday night, I I left uh, the office about five. It was dusk. It was getting dark. I wanted to make it home before dark. As I drove into our neighborhood, I was driving up uphill, and uh, it was definitely past sunset at this point, and I saw the strangest thing that really concerned me. Driving up 230th Way uh, towards my house and coming the opposite direction in the street was a little boy on a bicycle with a backpack on, no helmet, and he's bawling his eyes out. I drove by, I thought, did I just see what I think I saw? Like, you just try to process, like, what's, what's going on? There were two cars behind me, kind of on my tail. People that want to get home, they don't want to be bothered, they want to get back uh, into their garages and into their little isolated homes. It's a little judgy, sorry. <laughs> a little judgy. I pull over, the cars speed by, I get a little look. I find myself pulling a U-turn. Like, what am I doing? What's happening? And I start driving back, and the boy's nowhere to be found. And I think, I shouldn't have paused. I should have just gone with my gut instincts. As I come back down the hill, I, I pause, and there's a Y in the road. It goes even steeper down the hill at that point, almost to 169. And there's the bicycle in the street, and no boy. So I pull over, I go up to the nearest house, I see the lights are on, I see there's a car in the drive. I knock politely and ring the doorbell a couple of times. And then I knock impolitely to get an answer. No response. I know there's someone in there. Maybe this is the kid's home. I turn around and there's the little boy. But only now he has a helmet on. His name is Brandon. I said, Brandon, what grade are you in? Second grade, he could barely get the words out because he's just sobbing. And I don't know, what, what is he doing here? He can't put words together. Is he trying to run away? Do you know where you live? Do you know where your home is, Brandon? <laughs> yeah. Okay, what am I going to do? I open the trunk of the Highlander and throw his bike in and tell him to sit in the front seat. In this day and age, right? Some creepy guy, get in my car, kid. But what would you do? Do you really know where you live, Brandon? Because I don't want to be driving around Maple Valley, you know. But he said, I live back that way. Now it's dark, close to 5.30. I can just barely get out of him that he was supposed to be home by 5.00. And mom's going to be really mad because I'm supposed to be home by now. And we find our way back to his house, Lake Lake Forest um, Estates, if you guys know. That's pretty far from where he was. We get him up the drive, and there's mom and dad. Throw open the door. And he was so 
concerned how angry they'd be, and they just had big smiles. They're so happy for him to be home. The only words he could, could mutter to me at mom's prompting was, thank you, and ran inside. As I drove home, I said, Lord, you've just given me a picture of the gospel. Here's Brandon going the wrong way, in the dark, dangerously in the street, no helmet, crying because he believes Mom and Dad don't want me back. I'm going to be in so much trouble. I can't possibly make this right. There was no way he was going to find his way back to that house, not that night. There'd be a search party. And in the same way, we're running from the Father. We have tears in our eyes. We're doing dangerous, reckless things with our lives. We don't believe that we'll be accepted until he does something only he can do in a Highlander to pick him up and bring him back all the way home. Rob and team, come on out. Let's just close in prayer. As we consider, friends, the, the reasoning of Paul, the scripture of Paul, this is where the heart of Paul and the gospel comes. He wants to bring you home to his father's house where you're accepted and welcomed where you're out of harm's way and out of danger. So Lord God, I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters, the beloved that are gathered here in person and those watching at home. Lord, if any of us know in our hearts that we need something that we need to confess, we know that we've been recklessly heading away from you, God. We recklessly are misunderstanding uh, what it is to truly trust in you and our, our need again and daily the gospel. Guys, we sing this song as Chilean sings and leads us, Lord God. Could you do that work in our hearts? Draw us closer to you, Father. Bring us into the safety and the warmth of your embrace.